Welcome into the show. It is Daniel Hartman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 8 a.m. on the East Coast. 5 a.m. out west. Thanks for watching, for listening, for tuning in this morning. Welcome into the show. Glad to have you. It is Thursday, October the 31st. For the rest of the country, it is Halloween. In the state of Alabama, it's Nick Saban's birthday. So uh, just keep that in mind. I uh, hope you have a hope you do have a great day today. Um, last night, I uh, don't know if you were able to catch any of the calamity in Atlanta, but um, it was uh, it was a it was a pretty. Um, Pretty, you know, so-so game. Toronto couldn't couldn't get anything going. They couldn't keep the ball. They couldn't keep possession. They couldn't, um, you know, even really get out of their own end for for much of the game. They just struggled uh, to to stay on the field with the Atlanta, and maybe that was intentional. Maybe they didn't even try. Uh, Atlanta had many, many, many chances, including a penalty to go up to uh, 2-0 early on in the game. Uh, Joseph Martinez took a terrible penalty and uh, was saved by the goalkeeper shortly thereafter against completely against the run of play. Um, Toronto scores on, on, on a really nice uh, goal. Uh, terrible defending, but great shot. And um, it, it stayed 1-1 for the, the remainder of the game until late when Toronto again pulled off the same trick uh, completely against the run of play. Another great shot, but just absolute putrid defending. Uh, to, to even call it defending is is offensive to defenders. And um, Toronto moves on to one to uh, the MLS uh, Cup final, where uh, MLS Seattle plays MLS Toronto. Um, I joked last night on Twitter. Canada has now won two games in a row over the U.S. They've got two more chances in November. Uh, of course, I'm referring to uh, the Canadian men's national team versus uh, the U.S. national team coming up in Orlando and Toronto FC facing off against Seattle in Seattle at MLS Cup. So uh, we shall see. It was it was really uh, a boring game. Um, there wasn't. Uh, there wasn't really anything of good quality to note in terms of the quality of play. Um, and uh, Atlanta paid for not capitalizing on their opportunities and uh, will not be going to uh, MLS Cup final uh, two years in a row. They will uh, they will be at home watching, and that was the final game for uh, Parkhurst, the uh, captain of Atlanta, as he retires. And... That is that. Uh, World Series finished up last night, Game 7. I merely bring it up because Houston managed to to lose every game at home. And uh, some years that wouldn't matter. This year it mattered completely because they were... um, they had home field advantage and it's first time in major league baseball history that the team has lost all four games at home in a series. Houston uh, falling to the Washington nationals in game seven at home last night and the nationals win their first world series. Uh, that was a, that was a little bizarre as well. Speaking of bizarre, it just seemed like a day of, of bizarre, um, things going on in sports. So you had, uh, Toronto completely just unable to do anything. And then two goals completely against run of play, no attempts at defense. It was, it, that was bizarre. You, the 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 World Series that was bizarre, and then uh, before either of those things, we had one of the most bizarre Carabao Cup games I can remember between Arsenal and Liverpool. Arsenal um, visiting Anfield, Liverpool goes up one nil, and you know 
your immediate thought is, okay, Arsenal's going to be Arsenal, Liverpool's going to be Liverpool, and that's that. But Arsenal, there's no VAR in the Carabao Cup, and uh, Arsenal were able to score a goal where uh, the, the player was clearly offside, no review, goal stands, 1-1, and I think that breathed a little life into Arsenal, got them back in the game, and they went from 1-1, up 2-1, up 3-1, Liverpool able to get it back to 3-2, Arsenal extends the lead out again to 4-2, Liverpool comes back for three, for four, gives up a goal late to Arsenal, trailing 5-4, and in stoppage time with less than two minutes left in uh, in the game, Divac Origi yet again steps up in a big moment and uh, puts in a volley past the goalkeeper and to make it 5-5. In the Carabao Cup, it goes to penalties, and uh, Liverpool were able to advance uh, on penalties five four, and uh, and and move on. And uh, it was just it was a back and forth affair. It it was uh, it wasn't a pretty game. It was an exciting game, and uh, it was. Uh, it was bizarre. So you had, on the eve of Halloween, you had three really bizarre events in the world of sports, um, and it was uh, it was a made for a crazy day in uh, in sports yesterday. So um, also uh, in, involving the world of sports, but not on the field. Another bizarre bizarre story um, that. Shouldn't be too surprising, uh, knowing what we know and, and the rumors that have been s- circling around the 2018 World Cup in Russia. Uh, this this was uh, out yesterday, and um, this is kind of a Google translated. This was originally in Russian. I speak no Russian, so um, you know, pardon any errors, but. Uh, this is a Google translated uh, headline, quote, I tend to vote for one and a half million euros, end quote. Cap- Kapkov's correspondence revealed evidence of bribery of FIFA officials for holding the World Cup in Russia. Today, the Black Mirror Telegram channel posted fragments of hacked correspondence of the former head of the Moscow Department of Culture, Sergei Kapkov. Some of these letters from 2010 disclosed the methods by which the Russian authorities processed FIFA officials to persuade them to agree to host the World Cup in Russia in 2018. So, this leak um, included a dossier on FIFA officials. Um, one of the letters, uh, or part of a letter that was re- released was dated March 15th, 2010 with the subject dossier on FIFA officials. The file contains a dossier for each member of the executive committee committee and a proposal on how to handle it. For example, Franz Beckenbauer, uh, Franz Beckenbauer's voice is proposed to be bought through the, quote, generous reward, end quote, of his advisor. In Michel Platini should be influenced through UEFA's commercial partners. And uh, you see some of the, the dossiers um, included in this article summaries. And um, as a whole host... I was looking through the, these with some curiosity, and uh, lo and behold, we uh, we finally find Chuck Blazer from the United States, according to the Russian Organizing Committee, is possible through Roman Abramovich, Chelsea's owner. So, um, don't know what all else is there. Uh, I'm sure more is being uncovered. 
My question is, what did U.S. soccer know and when did they know it? I find it very hard to believe that Chuck Blazer was on an island within CONCACAF or within U.S. soccer. Jack Warner is listed in this dossier. Chuck Blazer in this dossier. Sunil Gulati at the time was president of U.S. soccer and a close confidant of Chuck Blazer. Carlos Cordero was an independent director on the board. And it was sometime during this uh, time that he assumed the role of treasurer on the board. What did they know and when did they know it about Chuck Blazer? Questions that need to be asked, investigations that need to be had. Um, very, 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 very bizarre story that came out yesterday. And uh, I think we're going to find more and more of that. This WikiLeaks style of exposure of corruption and um, there's got to be more wouldn't shock me if there is and it will be curious to follow what may have happened uh, in in that lead up people forget that in that whole setup we had 2018 but there was also 2022 so 22 was the original target date for 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 the u.s hosting the world cup um that went to qatar russia 2018 their primary opponent if i remember correctly were were england so don't know how all that went out, how all that shaped up, but um, hopefully we find some more information on on those things. Our sponsor this half hour is Ductic Brand. They are the maker of very cool products. We talk about them every day on the show. And instead of me talking about them today, I just want you to go to ductigbrand.com. That's D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. Use promo code DW show to get 10% off of your next order. You'll you'll thank me. You'll be glad that you did at ductickbrand.com. We'll be right back after this. show on this thursday october 31st halloween and we are delighted to be joined 
by Jason Broadwater. He is a soccer coach and host of On the Touchline. Jason, how are you this morning? Uh, doing great, Daniel. Thanks for having me back on, and uh, happy Halloween to you and your listeners. Glad to have you. Um, as I mentioned at the top of the show, it's also in the state of Alabama, Nick Saban's birthday, so we don't want to we don't want to miss the opportunity to uh, to mention that. Uh, it's it's you know just as important for people in the state of Alabama. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was going to say that's uh, on the calendar as a national holiday. I right? believe so. I, I think all the banks are closed uh, in the state of Alabama. <laughs> Not much business gets done as uh, they 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 flock and journey to Tuscaloosa to uh, pay homage to uh, the Almighty uh, Saban. Uh, That's right, Saint Nick. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, people in the state of Alabama are crazy. Um, so I wanted to to bring you on. I want to talk to you about a, a couple things. One is, um, you know, high school soccer. And uh, we've gotten in, into this tub, t- uh, topic on the show before. And um, one of the main things we did previously when we were looking at high school soccer is we were looking at some of the things high school soccer could learn from club soccer and vice versa. Today, I really want to kind of look at high school soccer um, as it is and also some of the maybe side effects of what's coming with um, the pay-to-play in NCAA soccer. Um, I've seen several hysterics uh, over the last, uh, you know, couple of days in regards to this subject and uh, wanted to, to maybe do some brainstorming with you on air about some of these subjects. But before we get into to that window of it, uh, when we look at high school soccer, what are some of the challenges that a coach goes through in terms of development, environment, players, etc.? You know, what are some of the things that 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 you run into when you are trying to coach in, in a high school, a scholastic setting? Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because um, people have asked me, friends of mine, um, you know, why did I begin coaching high school soccer? And, you know, there's a bit of a, um, a reputation, I guess you could say lately, that high school soccer is sort of, you know, it kind of is what it is, right? It's there, but it may not be the best competition, you know, that sort of thing. And I think that for me, um, what drew me to it and sort of being wired to want to teach and to help players learn, um, there's a massive opportunity to teach players uh, in high school soccer, as with, you know, most soccer scenarios here in the U.S. But it seems, um, you know, in high school soccer, at least in my experience, and I, one of the things that I wrote down was that grassroots or the grassroots pathway in this country is that it has failed a number of our players. And I told this to one of my coaching partners early in the season. And I bring this up because of a couple of different reasons. So I can't tell you how many times some of my players came to me throughout the season, Daniel, and said to me, coach, no one's ever taught me that before. And we're not talking about, you know, in-depth tactics. We're not talking about, um, you know, crazy technical abilities or anything like that. You know, simple receiving a ball across your body, how to make a proper pass, um, you know, your body shape. What does that look like? Um, And so consequently, they had no idea. So when I first introduced this concept to a lot of them, they looked at me as if I was, you know, speaking with two heads uh, or saying something completely ridiculous. And so it took some some teaching and some educating to them. The good thing, over the course of the season, they got better and they began to understand why uh, I wanted them to have a better body shape or, um, you know, what a, what a proper pass looks like, um, you know, or how to trap a ball or, or something like that. So I think um, in the comparison that I would make, so if a, a student gets to high school there is at least some expectation on the teacher's part or the school district's part that the child has a basic understanding of reading, of English, of math, of, you know, whatever the subject may be, history, um, you know, insert name of the subject. So why don't we expect sort of the same thing 
um, you know, from our soccer players. So I'm teaching a lot of these kids this concept for the first time. And it would be like teaching a high school student how to add um, or how to do simple subtraction or multiplication or something like that, you know, to sort of make a, a school comparison. Um, in terms of, uh, so, so that I would say there's a positive there that if you are wired to be a teacher, the high school environment could be a fantastic environment for you to work in. And I've loved that part of it. It's been a little frustrating at times because I wish the players were a little bit further along, but I know that that's sort of what I signed up for. Now, the, the things in my experience that aren't working as well. Um, so the game scheduling model, uh, we are a fall sport. Uh, soccer is a fall sport here in Pennsylvania. So consequently, you're cramming um, a, sig a significant number of games into a very short amount of time. Thus, I think, decreasing the level of competition. And um, there's actually a, a young lady who... Um, she's been offered a, a Division One scholarship, I want to say University of Memphis, um, I may be getting that wrong, uh, at a local high school here in the Pittsburgh area. And she had started playing with her high school team, actually, uh, you know, a quarter of the way into the season, walked away from it and said, basically, you know what, the risk of injury is too great. I'm with my club team. Uh, I'm going to focus on you know, uh, high quality training and just continuing to get better and get ready for this sort of next phase of my career. And I thought that was really interesting. And it got some, you know, publicity here locally um, that I could actually see a scenario where more and more kids that have that ability probably take that path. And so there's a, a period of time, I think it happened twice actually through our season. And you know, I sort of scratched my head as to how these scenarios come up. But, you know, you're playing three games in five days or you're playing, you know, five games in seven days or something like that. That seems like a lot to me. And the wear and tear, um, you know, 80 minute matches. Um, we've had a few of our matches that went into overtime. Uh, so you're playing, you know, uh, roughly 100 minutes uh, potentially, you know, of soccer. Um, yeah, they're, they're teenagers. Right. And, you know, their, their bodies can bounce back a little bit quicker than than, say, me at, at 38. But that's still a lot of wear and tear. And I don't know if we do enough. And again, just speaking here locally, that really is a student athlete centered model first. And I would actually propose and, you know, had mentioned this to some coaching colleagues. I would actually like to see what, you know, has been talked about in the college game of going to like a two season model where they have, um, you know, some fall sport, uh, but they also play in the spring uh, as well. And OK, so I get that you know, geography and, and weather and, and things of that nature are really going to impact what that might potentially look like in different parts of the country. And, you know, you live in a, a very American football rich community. Uh, I, I live in the same. So I get that, um, you know, that may take away, um, you know, from, from soccer in the fall or something like that in certain parts of the country. But I think in the interest of trying to preserve student athletes and perhaps maybe even attract new athletes to the game um, or kids that may be on the fringe uh, that might be a way, um, you know, to, to, to do it. Um, and then the last thing, uh, and of course I, I have to bring this up just because this is more of a, a I guess a, a personal uh, thing for me, but um, I, I'm exhausted of hearing the great referee shortage of 2019 Um I, I don't understand why, you know, much like any club or any organization, you know, business or whatever, that if you continue to do business the way you've done, but you found it's not working, but you're still doing it the way that you used to do it, that how, you know, do you w not wake up and say, man, that's not really sustainable. And maybe we need to change how we go about our practices instead of trying to shoehorn you know, things in there. And so um, we have this really crazy model here in Pennsylvania where, um, you know, most of the matches that uh, I was a part of this fall with my high school team, uh, we had two officials. Uh, I, in my experience, I don't think you can properly officiate a high school match with two officials. Um, there were matches where we had that third official, uh, you know, in the middle of the pitch. They then rotate unlike any other place that I've ever seen. So your center official 
may only have a third of the game. So then they're going to be one of the assistant uh, referees on one of the touch lines or on the sidelines. And it just makes for a very unevenly called match. <laughs> and um, I mean, there were times where I was on the verge of, you know, and I, I'm generally speaking, I have a pretty calm and cool demeanor uh, on the touchline. There's some things that happened this year that um, I think for me just really infuriated me as a coach going, there's how did, how could you make that call when you had absolutely no business making that call? And it was more or less a, um, you know, well, I thought I saw this, but I may not have. And so, um, you know, I know, I know I'm going down a rabbit hole here. Um, but I would venture to say that other states probably have a similar issue. So why not try and recruit uh, able-bodied, maybe younger officials that can be trained, matched with more experienced, more qualified officials? So I'm judged um, in a number of ways as a coach, right? Uh, Win-loss record, how am I developing players? Uh, there's a lot of qualitative feedback that players give to, say, an athletic director, parents give to an athletic director. Um, you know, we meet one-on-one -on -one with the athletic director, that sort of thing. I don't know how officials are judged. And for the fact that they sort of, you know, kind of get a free pass a lot, I think that diminishes from the quality of the game. And the fact that, you know, that may, again, it goes back to barriers. That may be a barrier for some players that say, you know, I know I'm going to be in a match where they have sort of, uh, you know, second tier quality officials officiating this match. Why put myself in that situation to be injured? And especially if I'm a good player and if someone's sort of gunning for me, right? Um, and maybe they take me out or something like that. So I think it increases the risk of injury. And, you know, that might sound a little far-fetched and that might sound like, uh, you know, a, a little crazy, but I, I, I've seen it with my own eyes. And I think something like that, you know, probably needs overhauled. I would say that the whole system when it comes to high, high school soccer can stand a good hard look in terms of, um, you know, moving the needle from, say, the 60s or the 70s to now being a 2019 sport that is a legitimate, you know, highly recognized, um, you know, type of operation. And as more and more people leave American soccer for concussions or for whatever reason, the soccer is going to continue to, you know, be in that conversation. It may not be the most popular sport, but it's still relevant. And I think that we need to do whatever we can to, um, you know, to, to lift the game up. When I look at uh, and, and listen to some of the things you're talking about there, um, one of the things I, I think about, and, I, and I've looked at this with not just uh, high school soccer, college soccer, club soccer, I think at, at pretty much any level beneath uh, professional soccer, because I, professional soccer in this country generally is not going to play more than two games in a week. Um most of the time they're aiming for one match a week. Obviously, sometimes you have alterations with, you know, a cup schedule or, you know, due to uh, maybe a team participating in a certain competition, the league schedule may have, you know, a Tuesday or a Wednesday game and then a weekend Saturday or Sunday game kind of thing. You see that all the time over in, in Europe as well, like, you know, the midweek this week in, in the UK, you had the Carabao cup, uh, with the top, you know, four levels, uh, of English soccer. And then, you know, this weekend they will be playing, um, you know, back in their, in their regular league schedule, uh, Saturday and Sunday. Um, when I look at high school soccer, I look at college soccer, I look at youth soccer, um, this, this idea that, um, we are playing match after match after match when in the club scene, it shows itself in these tournaments where you'll go and play three or four games in, in 36 hours. Um, when you are in the high school season, you mentioned three games in five days, five games in seven days. It's absurd. Uh, co college follows a similar pathway. Um, Little League Baseball, years ago, got with Dr. James Andrews, renowned uh, surgeon, 
works a lot in the sporting uh, world on athletes. Tommy John surgery, other surgeries. And uh, and he, along with others, uh, put together a plan for Little League Baseball um, based on the number of pitches a pitcher threw. They had to rest so many hours. Um, I think we need to, you know, really take a look at um, that for soccer at all levels in this country. That, you know, for every minute played, there needs to be X number of of commiserate you know rest so if if you play if your team plays an 80 minute match then there needs to be you know x number of hours before your team is allowed to play a second match and uh and if they've played you know uh, two uh, matches they can only do so many within x number of days what have you um and 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 let the the health and safety of the players guide the decisions on the schedules rather than the schedules just arbitrarily dictating health and safety risks um, on players and player safety. Um, you know, we, we are, we are not taking into account these, these athletes whether that's in a club environment, whether that is in a high school environment, whether, whether it's in a college environment, we have not been taking into account their health and safety. The fact that they need recovery time, um, that they need, you know, yes, they can go train, they can go play in a match and then go train three or four days, but that that is a different level of intensity. You can monitor and set up the training sessions to be, um, you know, helpful in their recovery from the match and prepare them for the next match rather than going, Hey, you just played an 80 minute match. You got a second match in, in three hours. Like that's, that's just absurd that we're asking players to constantly go out and do that. So if you're going to say play, you know, so one example would be if you're going to go and you want to play, in a tournament style or a festival style format on a weekend that in order to do that, you have to, to, to decrease the amount uh, of, of the game, the, the link, the overall length of the game. I've seen this in Europe. uh, When my son goes over and plays in these tournaments in Europe, they will, they're not going and trying to bang out, you know, three or four, you know, 80, 90 minute matches in 30 hours. They're playing, you know, little 40 minute, 35 minute matches and, you know, free substitutions. So everybody's getting some game time. They're playing, but it's, it's not this long drawn out thing. So in, in the course of a day, you may play quote unquote three matches but it was really one game and, and, and you weren't even probably on the field for 90 minutes because you're constantly subbing in and out. So it's, it's not built around the idea of, of, I mean, they're competing when they're on the field, but it's not this, you know, life or death experience. It's like everybody's getting minutes, everybody's getting competition. And these are used as kind of warm up tournaments for a season, etc. It's not necessarily the primary method of of competition for these clubs. So when I when I listen to the things you're talking about in terms of fixture congestion, uh, player safety, etc. To me, I think we've got to take a step back and the federation for everything outside of scholastic soccer needs to get a health and safety policy implemented like little league baseball to say, if you're a member of us soccer, you know, here are the the guidelines that you have to follow for playing time, fixture congestion, etc., uh, from a from a player health and safety standpoint. On the scholastic side, that's gonna that's gonna be a, a, a little trickier in that you're gonna have to work with you know all of the state associations, um, and then obviously on the college level, you've got the NCAA, which is always a blast to deal with. Um, but I, 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 I really think we've got to get serious about fixing um, this issue because there are a lot of 
health and safety and wellness issues, we've seen it particularly particularly play out on the women's side with, with just a just rash litany of ACL injuries, which are generally overuse and understrengthened for, for many of these can be, you know, prevented. Um, and, and I think fixture congestion plays a role in that um, as well. So, you know, looking at the high school game, looking at some of the things you're talking about, I think those are all, you know, considerations that should be discussed, that should be debated. And, and, and you're right. We do need to bring the sport into the 21st century in this country. Um, when we, when we look at high school soccer, uh, one other element to me is it is another pathway. So U S soccer has basically said like our preferred pathway is the development Academy. Um, but we've seen in the past, and I think we it's still there today, even if U.S. soccer doesn't want to look there, we have some really good players in this country that play high school soccer. It's another pathway. It's, an, it's, it's, a, it's part of certain players' pathways because it's their primary uh, opportunity to find access to the game you know, for a variety of reasons. And one of those is socioeconomic. Did you see that play out with your team or that, were there any players that, you know, maybe can't afford or are not getting a real shot at development Academy and, you know, are choosing to play high school or did you come up against any teams that had players that, uh, you know, were in that kind of, of pathway? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, and it's interesting to me that, that high school soccer is sort of this, um, there's, there's definitely a wide variance of abilities that you do have, um, you know, a, a fair number of, I would say, you know, above average, high quality players. And then you have, um, you know, players that are doing it strictly for, um, you know, to, to represent their school, to have fun, to be around their friends. Um, it's more of a, a recreational activity. And I've seen that not only on my own team, but in teams that we uh, competed against. So we're in an interesting, uh, you know, position here uh, in the Pittsburgh area. We don't have a development academy um, that is, you know, uh, within uh, the closest one, I believe, you know, within a a few hour drive. So, um, you know, uh, there's a number of kids that are still playing high school soccer. Um, I think that's a good thing. Um, But you know, uh, it's interesting to me that, you know, that the Federation, um, you know, has sort of uh, drawn this line in the sand to basically say, you know, we're only going to look at players from, like you said, the, the DA pathway. Um, I find that interesting because, especially on the men's side, what do we have to back it up? <laughs> I mean, that's awfully, a, a, you know, a high horse to be on for a country that hasn't had much success, um, especially on the men's side when it comes to soccer. So I would think that a better model might be, you know, we're looking at players from all backgrounds and yes, that does get into, um, you know, underserved and, um, you know, communities that are, um, you know, have may have high minority populations and, and things of that nature. We have basically, uh, we've talked about this before, Daniel, um, you know, we're, we're, we're missing a significant number of high quality players because the Federation has basically drawn the line in the sand. And um, if you're well off financially, great. You know, you're, 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 you may get noticed in this country, but if you're not, I mean, good luck. And um, it's, it's fascinating to me that a game that requires a ball and a field uh, or a pitch you know, that we're sort of making who can play it and who can't. I mean, that's kind of crazy, right? Um, and that's where we are in this country. So absolutely, high-quality players uh, that I saw, uh, you know, throughout the season. Um, some are playing this weekend uh, here in the Pittsburgh area and in some of the district finals. Um, but, you know, the fact that they've drawn the line in the sand and – why should we penalize a family, uh, you know, for their socioeconomic situation? Um, it's kind of ridiculous, but I mean, that's what we do in this country. Uh, and I, I mean, the more and more I think about this and, you know, I see it on a daily basis. I mean, it comes back to the finances. Um, 
you know, and the the beast is going to continue to feed itself until it gets blown up. And that's the Federation, you know, that's the NCAA. Um, it's other large, you know, they're going to shield and protect themselves as much as they can until en- there's enough of a, a public, you know, outcry for it to be blown up and, and torn apart. Yeah, I agree. I, I think public pressure is going to be the way uh, we we see these uh, types of changes come into be. I think uh, we saw that with uh, you know this week with the NCAA, you know, folding to pressure. California law comes out. They see that it's popular. They were hoping for a different reaction, um, and it didn't happen. It, it, it looked more and more likely that uh, Florida was going to be, uh, you know, coming up with their own version of that California law. Other states were having these same discussions in favor of the California law. The NCAA saw the writing on the wall. The pressure was there. They had to act. They, they were left no choice. Um, and, and I think that's the kind of pressure we're going to, we're going to need to, to see changes in sports in America. Unfortunately, we do not have an open market capitalist, um, you know, economy, sports economy, uh, everything is, is closed off. It is set up for oligarchs. And, uh, we see that with major league baseball, major league soccer, the NFL, the NBA. Um, it is, it is not a meritocracy. It is not open access. It is not open markets. And, uh, and, and so when you have those kind of setups, uh, in, in, in sticking here to soccer for a moment, you have a federation in U.S. soccer that is is insular, that is not accountable to its members um, by its governance and structure. It is, it you know, on paper they can they can tell the story to the public that they are voted on by members, etc. But there are only two board positions that are voted on by its membership. the The weighting of the votes of the membership in in actuality um means that the will of the public and the will of the majority is often uh superseded uh for the will of the minority and and so it's not uh set up the u.s soccer is not set up to to be responsive and reflexive and accountable to its members and so when we look at uh you know how do we get changes in these environments? Scholastic soccer, NCAA soccer, club soccer, looking at the Federation for a moment, this is an area that's, that's got to improve um, in terms of getting things done and public pressure, whether that is in the form of lawsuits, whether that is in the form of a, you know, California type law um, where, where they stepped in and said, look, enough is enough, whether it comes from Congress uh, or a court ruling, it's going to be external influence and pressure that's going to have to come into play in order to write uh the ship with us soccer and change its ways. Um, only having two elected board positions as, as I mentioned, and, and then the way those board positions are elected, um, means that that federation doesn't have to, to listen, uh, or take into account, Hey, player safety. We've got kids playing too many matches in a weekend. We're not going to do anything about it. People are making money. We're going to just let them stay happy. Instead, uh, that influence is going to have to come from the outside. Public pressure is going to have to be raised in order for for U.S. soccer to act and feel forced to act. and And uh, it's a sad state of where we are, but it it is where we are, and we can wish it was different, but it is not. And so we have to act accordingly and uh, and 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 bring to bear external forces and pressure in order to see changes uh, happen. It's just. You can look at the track record of the Federation where it could be leading on some of these things that you and I are talking about today in terms of player safety, fixture congestion, etc. And there's no leadership there. And and it's because there's not much leadership in any area um, outside of status quo and the norm. Uh, And and. I look at, you know, what's coming with the NCAA, for example, uh, with this, you know, paid to play um, changes, 
spurned on by this California law. Now the NCAA are adopting their their own kind of uh, version of this because they know they have to. One of the things I saw mentioned this uh, week in the last few days uh, from some some skeptics and naysayers uh, is the fact of you know a couple things. One is it, what what kind of effect might that have on other college athletes who aren't as f- famous, aren't as popular, etc. And two, more importantly, getting to 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 your world as a high school soccer coach. Are high schools now going to have to have compliance officers? Because in the past, that was something handled at an NCAA level. They weren't as concerned about this in the high schools in terms of that level of scrutiny, micromanagement, etc. Uh, I didn't. I didn't find it to be um, anything worth you know being that that concerned about, but. Are there going to be some changes to high school soccer or high school sports in general because of paid to play? What do you think some of those byproducts might be if college players can start to earn? Are we going to have to start to look out for agents on the sidelines at high school games, et cetera? What do you, what do you see if you put, you know, look into your crystal ball for a moment and, uh, and, 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 and daydream and think about, hypothesize some, you know, some possible, um, you know, side effects of the pay-to-play law as it affects high school sports and in particular high school soccer. I thought it was uh, really interesting when the NCAA put out their statement um, basically in response to the, the California law, um, you know, in terms of what the NCAA is, uh, is thinking about doing, you know, going forward. And one of the things that I wrote down uh, late last night, so uh, there's a, a quote from there that said, in a manner consistent with the collegiate model. And talk about um, trying to say something without saying anything, right? <laughs> um I don't know what that means. And um, uh, you probably remember, um, I think he was a a wide receiver at the University of Colorado, uh, Jeremy Bloom. Um, But he also was a, um, I think he was into skiing, if I remember correctly. And the NCAA basically ruled him ineligible. This was years ago um, because he did, um, you know, he he was sponsored to to do some skiing stuff um, in addition to, you know, playing um, NCAA Division I uh, football, uh, American football. And um, I think he didn't play his final two years at at Colorado. So um, I I think there's a, a lot to obviously navigate. Um, I think I saw, uh, floating around on social media that, um, you know, one of the, the senators, uh, in, in our Congress was, uh, saying that he was going to put a, a bill forward to basically say that if athletes are making money, that they're going to be treated, um, you know, is, is taxable income. And, um, you know, obviously the, the government's going to want to interject themselves, um, to the degree that they can, I'm, I'm sure, you know, it, it brings up a lot of really interesting questions and, you know, you might see this in, um, you know, sports here in the States, like, a you know, football or, or basketball, right. That, you know, you put on ESPN or ESPNU and you see these um, days where uh, a high school uh, American football player is picking their college, right? And it's sort of this big reveal, right? They got the three hats on the table and, you know, they do uh, some sort of hocus pocus and eventually then they pick, uh, you know, whoever they pick. Those athletes have a level of notoriety already. Um, I can think of a young lady here locally that has already verbally committed to play um, collegiate soccer at University of North Carolina. Um, that's fairly big for you know our area. Um, you know, occasionally we'll produce a player, but you know, generally speaking, the the Pittsburgh area hasn't been necessarily a hotbed of uh, of soccer players. So, um, and I believe she's a sophomore in high school already. So the level of notoriety, people know who she is, you know, I mean, there's no, so could she capitalize on that already as a sophomore in high school? Maybe, um, you know, I, 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 I'm in favor of it. Um, 
you know, generally speaking, obviously, as, as, as it's been reported by a number of news outlets, the devil's going to be in the details. And, you know, something else that I wrote down, Daniel, is that um, annual revenues for the NCAA are over $1 billion, with a B, dollars. That's crazy, right? I mean, we're venturing uh, U.S. soccer and NCAA are like, um, you know, cousins, and they see each other at Thanksgiving and, you know, sort of uh, joke and laugh about how much money they're bringing in. Um, I, I, I don't know, you know, could it become like the Wild West? A- a- absolutely. Um, but, you know, could it be regulated? Perhaps. Um, you know, that's, a I think, a heavy burden to put on high school's um, to, to have sort of some compliance officer in terms of, you know, how to navigate something like that. Um, you know, is it only for, uh, uh, college, uh, players? I think the bigger point in all this is something that you had brought up earlier. If we have a living, breathing federation that gives a damn about soccer, you know, since this is the sport that you and I are into in this country, there is a massive opportunity to get ahead of some of these issues. But what do we do? We sit on our hands, we watch the day go by, and we sort of huddle and protect what we can protect. And if it isn't going to make them money, they're probably not interested. So um, I just, I mean, I again, there, there could be a fantastic way to get ahead of it that way and be a leader and looked at as, somewhat competent in what they do. I think that's why so many people think that the Federation is such a joke um, because they truly, the issues, player safety, um, how players are compensated, um, you know, fixture model in scheduling. If they cared about any of those things, they would have probably intervened already. I don't think they give, you know, two craps about those things um, because in the end, if it doesn't relate to money, then, you know, they're going to let it fall by the wayside. And it's more of the status quo, uh, like you had mentioned before. Last question, uh, wrapping up here with the grassroots. Um, how can we improve uh, the quality in the grassroots? You mentioned you had you had players coming into your program, didn't know how to receive the ball across the body, had never been taught this concept um, which, you know, as you mentioned, uh, and I agree with you, it's, it's very much like, um, you know, learning the alphabet, learning numbers, the basics. Um, how do we, you know, how do we improve the, the quality of the grassroots? Is it, is it coaching education? Is it coaching education, you know, with the parents? Um, or is it even younger? Is it, is it family education? Uh, you know, you, coaching education seems to be the buzzword, but these kids are with their families much more than they are with a coach, especially when they're two, three, four, five, six years old. And I can't help th- but think about Tom Beyer and his, in his work. Um, yeah. what, what are your thoughts there on improving the quality of the grassroots? Yeah, I, I mean, it has to be multifaceted, right? And it, I, there is no silver bullet that if you do one thing, it's going to, to fix all the problems, at least in, in my estimation. Um, I think family education, for sure. I think coaching education, absolutely. Um, it's interesting uh, to hear, um, th- there's a number of coaches that I know that say, you know, the, the game is the best teacher, that players need to be playing the game as much as possible with their friends in a very unstructured um you know, pick up sort of environment all for that. The problem, I think, um, and again, this is just based off of my experiences, the willingness of parents to let their kid go play, right, in a community park or in an environment that is unstructured is counterintuitive to how life is for a lot of people in 2019. It's not for everybody. But for, you know, I would say a significant number of people because, you know, we have been, I think, conditioned of the bad people that are out there. Right. Um, And we hear about these news reports all the time. So, you know, as a parent uh, and as a parent of three kids, it's hard for me to say, yeah, just go down to the community park and just, you know, play some some pickup soccer with your friends. So I think there has to be sort of a meet in the middle somewhere. And what I mean by that, and again, you know, I think a theme that we've sort of discussed here today is the Federation. And, you know, that's a, a topic that I could go on about all day. The, the Federation could lead by saying every Friday, 
you know, throughout the spring, we're going to have free play Fridays with every club in America. And here's what that looks like, right? So you put some structure in place to say, we're going to provide the venue. We're going to, um, you know, it's going to be from 6 to 8 p.m., whatever. Coaches are going to show up. But the coaches that show up, they're not going to coach. All they're going to do is make sure that there's balls, there's goals. Um, you know, maybe you have some corner flags, maybe you have some cones, whatever. But other than that, players figure it out. Here's some pennies, go play. And let the players begin to make those decisions. Um, you know, is something like that achievable and doable? I don't see why not. Um, you know, there's clubs around the country that are probably doing this on their own. And, you know, they're not waiting for the federation. Tip of the cap to them. I think that's awesome. Um, so while I agree that getting kids to play the game, um, you know, it is highly important. And it goes back to, you know, for me as a kid, I mean, I would go to the local park and play pickup basketball with uh, a number of people that were much bigger and faster and stronger than me. Uh, and that was a great learning tool um, for when I was playing basketball. So there has to be, like I said, some meat in the middle somewhere that it's parent education, it's coaching education, it's club education. I mean, goodness, how many governing bodies do we have within club soccer? <laughs> you know, could you name the alphabet soup that that is? Um, I mean, it's crazy, right? When people say, I'm unfortunately, I can, but I wish I couldn't because it gives me a headache. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But right. So imagine bringing that up to a parent that has no soccer background and they look at you going, well, isn't it all the same, you know, all part of the same structure and all part of the same thing? And you go, well, not really. And they go, what do you mean? So, again, it's sort of this, uh, you know, very disjointed operation that we have. And I think, uh, and this is why my frustration with the Federation, the Federation obviously uh, can't solve every single, you know, micro problem in the game here in the States. But they can do a hell of a lot more than what they're doing. And they can at least begin to look at some of the macro issues. Like, why aren't we developing, you know, quote unquote, world-class players on the men's side, right? Like, that's a problem. Uh, why are, you know, why are DA sort of in the state that they're in? So it all ties together. But those players that are in the DA, what were they at one time? They were rec players. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's such a, a thorny and, you know, complex issue. I mean, like I said, there's no magic bullet that would solve everything. Um, but I think that they have to do something, right? I mean, this uh, sort of passive sitting on our hands, you know, watching the grass grow attitude as a parent and as a coach. I mean, it drives me insane. And if it doesn't come from any of us that are crazy about this game, where's it going to come from? I, I don't know, you know, and that's why we get labeled as sort of the crazy ones because like we're outspoken about some things. Uh, if it's not going to come from us, then nothing's going to change. And we're going to be on, you know, we're going to continue on the path to mediocrity that we've been on forever. I, I completely agree. I love, I love your thoughts there. I had John Townsend on yesterday and he was talking about, you know, his idea for every state having a center of excellence and, and bringing in players and kind of having uh, almost a, 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 an outpost of the Federation at e in, in each state uh, where players can come in and train regardless of, of affiliation, regardless of, um, you know, uh, socioeconomic status, et cetera. And it would give the Federation a, a really good way to scout uh, players uh, beyond, uh, you know, the current setup the way it is now. Today, you're talking about free play Friday and some of these other ideas. I love problem solvers and people that are willing to, um, you know, to think outside of the box to try to find solutions. Uh, and, and, you know, that's how we, that's how we make progress in this country. Uh, looking, looking out and going, okay, Hey, where, where is, where are some injustices? Where are some inequities? Where are some inefficiencies in the system, in the market, uh, in the governance, etc.? How can we address those one by one and, and, and change the direction, uh, of the Federation and ultimately uh, change the direction of this country when it comes to American soccer. I, I believe I say this all of, all of the time, um, but I believe that, that American soccer, we could be the greatest soccer country on earth. Um, and, and, 
we just have to have the will to commit to that. And if we do, we, you know, just like we put a man on the moon, I think we can get there and get there in short order, but it has to be our focus. And if that becomes our, our biggest priority, then everything gets put on the table uh, and it, and is, and is run through the lens uh, from a decision-making standpoint of that goal and aim. And I, I just don't think we're at that place uh, from a leadership standpoint. And until uh, we change the personnel uh, who are in these leadership positions. I don't think we're going to get there. Uh, I think that that this group of personnel have proved that they are they are not up for the challenge, and uh, it's unfortunate. But I think I think we have to start moving on and finding uh, new leaders, fresh ideas to get us there. And and I love the ideas you were bringing today, Jason. How can people get in in touch with you, connect with you, um, you know, with your podcast? Cast with with you on Twitter, etc., uh, to learn more about your work. Yeah, the uh, on the Touchline podcast uh, season three is going to be coming out uh, very very soon. Um, so you can go back and listen to seasons one and two, and those are available on any major podcasting outlet, so Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, highly active uh, on social media, uh, Twitter and Instagram, and uh, yeah, I would love to connect with anyone uh, at Soccer Coach JB. And um, as my wife tells me, I probably tweet too much, <laughs> so. Uh, uh, but I, I, I do love it just because the the ongoing conversations and, um, you know, to the last point that you brought up there, Daniel, there is no reason in my mind or in the world that we should not have the deepest, um, most qualified player pool, men's and women's side of any country in the world. I mean, why can't it be that way? Right. I agree. So, I agree. Yep. And our, and our, our, uh, our national team programs, our country at large, um, is is barely scratching the surface of our potential. Uh, and we need more people to wake up to that reality for sure because uh, that's the only only way we're going to get there is external pressure and change. Uh, I was hoping we had reached that uh, watershed moment in the 2018 presidential election. Um, but as we know, uh, we, we got close. The majority voted for reform, but the, the weighting of the votes didn't allow that to uh, result in the way that it should. So you're, you're going to need a little bit more effort and more help to get us there. But hopefully we're getting closer each and every day. Jason, thanks for joining the show. We really do appreciate it. Yeah, love uh, being on, and thank you for the great work you're doing. And, uh, yeah, thanks again, Daniel. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That is Jason Broadwater, Broadwater, host of the uh, On the Touchline podcast. Check out his work. Download his podcast. I've had the pleasure of being on uh, uh, his his podcast. It, it's, a, it's a great listen. Uh, do yourself a favor and check that out. Speaking of checking things out, check out charitywater.org. Learn more about their mission of providing clean drinking water to people all over the world and join that story at charitywater.org. We will be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. And you could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. I'd like to thank Jason for joining the show today. Uh, It was always a pleasure talking with him. It is Halloween. Enjoy the night. Hope you have a great one. Um, Lots of candy. Lots of family. Lots of fun. Hope you have a good night. 
and uh, and enjoy it. As always, you can watch the show on Facebook.com forward slash WRKMN or at DanielWorkman.com. Check me out on Twitter or Instagram. Send me a message at Daniel Workman. Thanks for joining the show. We'll see everyone again tomorrow. Goodbye.